Hey everyone, I am sure you noticed that your feed for Insight looked a little dodgy this week. We have recently joined CastBox. We're really excited about this. But in the transfer of our feed, there was some blah, blah, blah technical stuff that made the transfer not go as smoothly as it should have. Hopefully it will resolve itself quickly enough that we will have all of our episodes accessible in your feed and only one of each episode. It's also why we delayed the release of this episode, but we're really excited to get this episode to you, get our feed sorted out. We're super excited to be part of CastBox now. And also stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear a promo from one of our friends, the Minds of Madness podcast. We think you're really going to love it. In August of 1994, Nick and Lisa Massey told friends and coworkers that they were set to meet an unnamed investor for dinner. No one showed up at that dinner, and the next day, Lisa made two phone calls. Then, the couple vanished. It's been 24 years, and it doesn't look like authorities are getting any closer to answering the question, where are Nick and Lisa Massey? Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and with me today is a guest host who I'm really excited to have here. Welcome to Christy from Canadian True Crime. How are you? I'm good, thanks, Charlie. I'm so excited to be back on Insight again. I think it's been like eight months or something, so it's really exciting for me. You had helped guest host when I was on maternity leave, so this is the first time I'm getting to record with you can you just tell our audience a little bit about your show? Yeah, sure. So Canadian True Crime covers a range of cases from around Canada. I narrate the story and I set it to ambient music. And obviously, I'm actually Australian, but I've been living here in the greater Toronto area for nine years now. So I'm uh, pretty much a bona fide Canadian, a, a proper citizen. Normally, I focus on solved cases and cases that have been through the court system. So it's actually a treat to talk about some mysterious ones here too. We're recording quite a bit ahead of when this episode comes out. So when I say recent, I mean recent to when we're recording. But recently, you and I did a little bit of a crossover, maybe we could say, of cases because you covered the youngest serial killer in Canada, Peter Woodcock, and his three child victims, and I talked to the person who was wrongfully convicted of one of those crimes. So I definitely recommend people go back and look at those episodes. My episode on Impact Statement is called The Wrongful Conviction of Ronald Moffat. What is the title of the podcast you did? Yeah, so I called mine after the three child victims. So it's episode 31, and it's called Wayne Millette, Gary Morris, and Carol Voice. I definitely recommend people check them out and listen to both of them because, you know, I focus really narrowly on one person's experience, and you give the full story. So they're really good companion pieces. So I hope people will check those out. Yeah, it was really fun to, to work with you on that. I also, before we get started on this case, which is a very interesting case, and I'm eager to jump into it, but we have such an amazing thing happening in July. Yeah. The True Crime Podcast Festival. It's happening. It's in Chicago. It's July 13th, 2019. I'm helping plan it. 
So I can tell you it's going to be an amazing weekend. The actual convention is just one day, but people are in town on either side of that. You can buy tickets to this at tcpf2019.com and also get information on the hotel rate and also the other podcasts that are going to be there. Just skimming the list right now, I see, of course, Christy from Canadian True Crime. Obviously, I'll be there. Already Gone is going to be there. Criminology. True Crime Fan Club is going to be there. Misconduct. Pretend Radio. Murderish. Murder Road Trip. I mean, this is just a partial list. And more podcasts are being announced every week. This is going to be a great time to just focus on podcasts and to focus on true crime podcasts. I'm really looking forward to it. So I highly encourage everyone to go. So let's get to our case today. I'm pronouncing the last name Massey. That is how I heard it on the one news broadcast I could find on this case. But when you see it written, it kind of looks like Massey. So I kind of had to make a judgment call there. And I apologize if I am saying it incorrectly. Nick Massey and his wife, Lisa, met when he was a successful banker and she was cutting hair at a salon in Vancouver, British Columbia. Lisa was cutting Nick's hair and the two of them hit it off. In spite of their 16-year age difference, they actually had quite a bit in common. They were both worldly. They had lived in other countries. They had traveled a lot. Nick was from the Netherlands and Lisa was from China, so they also had the experience of having immigrated to Canada. They had both been married before. Lisa didn't have any children, but Nick did have two grown children, Tanya and Nick Jr. When Lisa was 29 and Nick 44, they married, and they were married for about 10 years when they went missing. Nick started at the Bank of Montreal, or BMO as we call it, just a few years after he immigrated to Canada. He started in Halifax, Nova Scotia in eastern Canada, but eventually made his way out to Vancouver on the western side. He spent 35 years working for the bank, working his way up from a 20-year-old bank clerk to a senior banker who worked as the personal banker for some of the most powerful business leaders in Vancouver. And at the beginning of 1994, he retired from his job. Leaving was his idea. There were no hints that he was being pushed out. From what he told friends, it sounds like he was ready to try to make more money doing what he watched everybody else do. That's invest and grow businesses. While he was making his $85,000 salary a year, he was watching bank executives draw huge bonuses and his clients grow their profits and he was ready to enter that world. Nick was an upstanding and forthright guy, not a cutthroat business wheeler and dealer, but he had been in the industry for so long that he definitely had the know-how and the connections to make this happen. Everyone who knew him liked him, and many knew him for decades, which is a rapport a business venture company could only dream of. The couple was quiet, and they had a small circle of true friends. Lisa's best friends were her sister and her cousin. Their life has been described as almost secluded, though they did go on trips and they went out to fancy dinners with various clients of Nick's. Before 1994, it seems the only break in this very normal life 
came in 1978 when Nick, working as a bank manager at the time, helped police take down a 200-something pound bank robber. Nick weighed maybe 135 pounds at the time. This incident was actually written up in the newspaper. But back to 1994. Right after he left the bank, Nick and Lisa spent a month in Maui at their timeshare before returning to Vancouver. Lisa went back to the salon where she had always worked, and Nick went to work for a company called Turbodyne Technologies. This company was looking to produce a cleaner diesel engine, and Nick's job was to work on the financial side. In August of 1994, Nick was contacted by a man from California who said he remembered Nick from the bank. He said they had met before, though Nick didn't remember the man. Not out of the norm for Nick because he met a lot of people at various functions and events and friends of friends and friends of clients. There's no way he could possibly remember them all. I'm sure plenty of our listeners have had this experience if they work in a large group that networks a lot. What got Nick's attention, though, was that this man had a large sum to invest, $10 million, and he was looking at Turbodyne as one of his investment possibilities. Now, Lisa told coworkers she thought this was weird. I mean, who calls and is like, I've got 10 million bucks and I want to give it to you. I mean, it sounded like better of a deal than she could actually believe. Nick and Lisa had been invited by their friend Walter Davidson to watch fireworks over English Bay on August the 10th, but they turned down the invitation because Nick had set up a meeting with this businessman to discuss investing. The man told Nick that he was bringing his wife along and that Nick should also bring Lisa and to not worry about driving. The man would send a limo around to pick them up. So Nick made reservations for 8.30 for that Wednesday evening. We know that he made the reservations because this restaurant, Trader Vic's, was a place where he and Lisa were regulars and they recognised his voice on the phone. It's closed now, but in 1994, Trader Vic's was located at the Western Bayshore Hotel. Shortly before they were meant to arrive, Nick called the restaurant to let them know they were running late and to please hold the table. The restaurant did hold the table until 9.30, but no one showed up. Two witnesses would later say that they saw Nick and Lisa at the lounge of the same Western Bayshore Hotel that night from 6.30 until about 10.30 and they were drinking wine. It seems possible they were there to meet the businessman before heading over to the restaurant and called to say they were delayed because this businessman hadn't showed. They waited until 10.30 when they headed home, likely disappointed. That makes sense, except that witnesses say Lisa looked like she had just come from work and Nick was wearing a tracksuit. They absolutely did not look like they were about to have a professional dinner at a high-end restaurant. And Lisa had told the co-workers that this man was sending a limo. So why would he have sent a limo to have them at the hotel for two hours before the dinner, only to leave them waiting? I just find that this is so strange on so many different levels. Like, the main weirdness for me is why was Nick wearing a tracksuit? 
why would anybody have a drink at a bar wearing a tracksuit, let alone when they're scheduled to have a business meeting? I just can't make heads or tails of this whole thing. I definitely find this scene the most puzzling part of what we're going to talk about today, and probably more so than any other individual piece. I mean, why tell the restaurant you were running late and then sit nearby in casual clothes for hours? They were clearly not running late if they were there as early as 6.30. Now, I read one report that they also ate hamburgers while they were waiting, and I hesitate to bring that into the narrative because I only saw it in one place, and I prefer things that have been verified through multiple sources. But if that is true, that makes no sense. I mean, if you're hungry and dinner's being delayed, you get an appetizer, you get something light, you don't eat a hamburger. That makes it sound like they never intended on going over to Trader Vic's. Yeah, it's very strange. I mean, after you've eaten a hamburger, there's no more room in your stomach for any more food. So that leads me to believe that they maybe might have already received notification that the man wasn't turning up. But again, the tracksuit. Right. And that brings up the theory that maybe this meeting was somehow fake, even on their part that they just told people about this meeting. This was all a setup before they disappeared to leave some suspicion around. But if they faked it, why did they bother going out at all? Like, why go somewhere where they frequented it would be recognized? Why didn't they just stay home and just lie about this meeting? And for what it's worth, investigators would later find no evidence of a limo being dispatched to the home and no neighbors reported seeing one drive by. Saying a limo was coming, that would explain their car still being home. So why didn't they just stay home if they made up this meeting? This doesn't make sense, either them making it up or the other person conning them into coming there. So all of this just leaves me with so many questions. And we know that they didn't disappear that night. The next day, so we're talking Thursday, August 11th, Lisa made two phone calls. Both of them were around 10 a.m. She called her work and she said that something had come up. She had a court case she had to deal with, though she didn't give specifics and we don't know what she was talking about. She did say she would be back into work on Tuesday. She then called Nick's business and told them that he was going to be away for a few days, but would touch base with them with details later. Now, only Lisa made these phone calls. Nick did not call his work. The next week, friends, family, coworkers, they had all called the Messes and got their answering machine at home and the voicemail on Nick's business cell phone. And this happened almost immediately. Someone from Nick's work called him 30 minutes after Lisa had called in and got the voicemail. These two calls Lisa made were the last anyone would hear from either of the couple. When investigators later traced the calls that Lisa made, they were both made from Nick's cell phone from the Sunshine Coast area, north of Vancouver. But this was 1994, so there weren't nearly as many cell phone towers pinging data as there are today. The area that would have used the tower or towers that Lisa's calls pinged off was rather large. All it basically tells us is that they were still in Western Canada when the calls were made and likely not too far from home. 
When Lisa didn't return to work on Tuesday, her co-workers were immediately alarmed because she had never simply not shown up. On Nick's side, his friend who had invited them to watch the fireworks, Walter Davidson, was also getting alarmed. He'd left several messages for Nick to give him a call, and it was out of the ordinary for Nick not to return calls. One message Davidson left said, If you've been kidnapped, please press 1. It was obviously a joke, but it seems rather dark looking back now that we know the Massays did go missing at this time. Lisa's salon called her sister to express their worry, while Davidson called Nick's work to try and find him. Lisa's sister went to the house and then called police when she didn't find her sister at home. It was about a week after they'd last been seen before the meeting with the mysterious businessman. Nick and Lisa's car was there and the house was in its usual well-kept state. There wasn't anything to indicate that there was a struggle or there was forced entry into the home. So you might think that it looks as if they left on their own. But not everything was perfectly normal. The couple had an elderly cat, and they were one of those couples whose cat was their child. They adored their cat. Yet the cat had been left behind in the home with no extra food. I know when we had our cat and we'd go out of town for a short period of time, we would just leave out extra food. The cat had no food, and this was for days. Now, I don't want anyone to worry. The cat was found in time that she recovered from my understanding. And if I'm wrong in that, I don't want to hear it. The door was unlocked and their security system was not set, which was absolutely uncharacteristic for this couple. They weren't paranoid, but they were security conscious. And friends expected that they would have locked the door and set the alarm if they had gone anywhere. Most alarming, two plastic zip ties were found on the floor. And they were the types similar to the flexi cuffs that police officers use in some jurisdictions. I've not seen it specified if these were unused zip ties or if they had been used and cut off or possibly slipped off. It's reported that the couple's passports were left behind. We don't know that they only had one passport each. They may have had them from Canada and from their countries of birth. Reports just say that they were left behind. So we have to assume that authorities accounted for all the possible passports they had, but I've just not seen this spelled out. So that's the basic story of the disappearance and what led to it. There are a number of theories of what happened to this couple. An early theory was that the couple was in witness protection. A year after their disappearance, the RCMP said that they couldn't rule it out. And to the CBC, they simply said they didn't know, and that if they did know they couldn't say. As for why the couple would be in witness protection, it could have been due to some information that Nick had on illegal dealings from his job as a banker. While no one has linked Nick to any involvement personally, a few of his clients have been accused or convicted in financial crimes. One of these clients was Nelson Scalbania, who was about to go on trial on theft charges. He had taken $100,000 from an investor that was placed in trust in order to cover an outstanding business debt. 
Nick was on the prosecution's witness list for the trial, but his role was considered rather small in the case against Scalbania and not one where you would think he needed to be protected from anyone. He wasn't a huge threat to Scalbania, who was eventually convicted without Nick's testimony and served a year in prison. We don't know the details of everyone being investigated for financial crimes that Nick may have had knowledge of. There may have been bigger issues than just Scalbania. I think early on this would have been a possibility, but now that they've been gone for 24 years without Nick having testified against anyone, that makes this particular theory pretty improbable at this point. I really think that this theory would have fallen by the wayside within five years or so without him testifying, without him getting in contact. I don't know how witness protection works in Canada, but in the U.S., they don't leave you in there forever without having you actually testify against anybody. Yeah, I actually discussed this with my fellow Canadian podcaster, Robin Warder from The Trail Went Cold, because he actually knows a little bit about this case. He included it in one of his Listverse articles about mysterious cases involving people who've gone missing. And he said to me that the thing that he noticed was that at the 20-year anniversary of the couple having gone missing... The media reported widely on this 20th anniversary, but if the couple were in witness protection, it's likely that the RCMP would have quashed that kind of reporting because they obviously wouldn't want the publicity from it. So I tend to think that the witness protection theory probably is uh, fairly improbable. So the knowledge of illegal enterprises and activities also fuels the murder angle. This mystery investor may have been a ruse or a lure to get them to leave their home. Either Lisa made those calls to co-workers by force, or she made them willingly because the couple planned to go away with the investor for the weekend to negotiate the terms of the deal. The theory of murder is the one believed by the family, and in 2001, Both of Nick's grown children and Lisa's sister filed to have the couple declared deceased. This was right at that seven-year mark, which was the requisite period of time they would have had to wait under Canadian law. There were no signs of life in those seven years. None of their bank accounts or credit cards had been touched, and they hadn't contacted anyone. Nick's son even submitted to a polygraph and passed over the issue of if he had heard from his father during the period they've been missing. The families wanted them declared dead, both for the practical reason of being able to settle their estate, but also the symbolic one of accepting that their loved ones were deceased and allowing them to move forward with their grieving. A lot of families of missing people find this period of limbo extremely painful. Vancouver is a coastal city with easy access to the ocean, and it's not far from rather remote areas. I don't want to sound too cold about it, but there are places to put bodies without going too far from the city and places where they're unlikely to be found. It's definitely worth noting that the company Nick was working for found itself in serious trouble after he disappeared. I don't have a business background. I run a podcast-related business, and 
The best I do is sometimes I don't mess it up. That's all I can manage. But what Turbodyne was doing doesn't take a financial whiz or a business genius to figure out it was wrong. They were issuing false public statements about how well the company was doing. Because of these statements, people were buying stock in Turbodyne, and the demand for the stock then inflated the stock price. By 1999, they were facing disciplinary action from the Vancouver Stock Exchange, as well as class action lawsuits filed by groups of these investors who felt they had been duped. Now, Nick was an honest straight shooter. I saw one interview with a friend who said that if Nick won money playing poker, he would definitely claim it on his taxes. So if Nick saw wrongdoing like this in the company, you think he would not have participated and likely wouldn't have turned a blind eye to it. Whether it was at Turbodyne or with any of the number of other investors and promoters that Nick knew the finances of, he may have known things people were afraid would get out. And it does look like something was going on with Nick. His son reported he'd been quieter and more tight-lipped about what was going on in his life in the months leading up to his disappearance. Then they found out that about three months before the couple disappeared, Lisa and Nick took a trip to the Cayman Islands. This wouldn't seem entirely odd for a couple who liked to travel, except that they didn't tell anyone where they were going. They just made vague references to going somewhere. According to a private investigator hired by Nick's son, while in the Caymans, they opened a bank account with $100,000 in it. A fair amount of that was in stocks. It wasn't hundred k in cash. But they also had their wills drawn up at the same time. The wills made sense, to be honest. Lisa was turning 40 a month after their disappearance, and Nick was 55. He'd just retired from one very stable, steady job for something that was decidedly riskier. It makes sense to have their wills either drawn up for the first time or rewritten to fit their new life circumstances. The money on the Caymans also makes sense. While banking in the Caymans gets a bad rap for being shady, it is perfectly legal to bank offshore and you are still subject to the income tax laws of your country. Some people hide their money and don't report it, but the main benefit of the Caymans for a couple like the Massays, who did deal with financial matters in an above-board manner, is that their banking privacy laws are among the strictest in the world. The second huge benefit is that this type of banking is what they do, so they also have some of the best financial advisors in the world. But what doesn't make sense is why they would hide that they were doing this. Another piece that doesn't entirely fit is that the Massays had an incredible amount of debt, and $100,000 in cash and stocks could have helped them out of the hole they were in. Nick and Lisa surely could have lived comfortably on his income. He was making about $85,000 Canadian dollars, which in the 1990s would be more like $130,000 today. They did live in Vancouver, which is one of the most expensive places to live, not just in Canada, but in all of North America. But they had two incomes. Nick's children were grown, so it's not like he was paying child support. And they lived in a nice home in a nice area, but it was also modestly sized. It's not like they bought a huge house in an expensive area. They had this timeshare in Maui. 
And they had some luxuries that may seem like high living from the outside, like fancy dinners and trips on private jets. But most of those were paid for as thank yous from Nick's clients. But at the time they disappeared in August of 1994, the Massays had about half a million dollars in debt. That number does include their mortgage, but it's still out of proportion with their incomes. I know those living in Vancouver today are like, nope, sounds about right, half a million dollar mortgage. But we're talking 1994. They had bought the house years before, back when the average person could find a home to buy. It wasn't like it is today. So unless the money in the Caymans was almost entirely stocks and they wanted to hang on to it longer to see if they could make it worth more, it doesn't make sense that they didn't use that money to try and pay down their debt. But that leads into the other theory that they ran off, possibly to avoid those debts. According to an unnamed witness who spoke with the private investigator, Nick made a comment at a funeral in August saying that he had to leave town. He was described as distraught, and one report said that he actually said that he was in trouble. Leaving to avoid their debts is definitely a possibility. But another possibility under the left-on-their-own theory is with the disappearance of a business associate of Nick's, a fellow Dutchman living in Vancouver named Fred Hoffman. Now, Hoffman disappeared from Canada about three years before Nick and Lisa disappeared, but when he disappeared, so too did $10 million of investors' funds. It's not entirely clear to me how much actual money he stole and how much was just money he lost in the Ponzi scheme he was running. But he was facing dozens of fraud-related charges, and Nick Massey had helped find him investors before he cut and run. It was believed that Hoffman was living in Belize, and there are those who think that perhaps Nick and Lisa had disappeared with his help. No money was missing when the Massays left, but if Nick was involved with Hoffman, some of the millions he stole could have been Nick's cut. Nick's son says this is ridiculous. His father had actually invested his own personal funds with Hoffman, and he was one of the investors who lost money. It's also outside of everything anyone knows of Nick. After 35 years in the industry, several of those years as a personal banker to the wealthy, he never had any money out of order. So why would he suddenly commit a massive fraud like this and abandon his friends and his family? And why would Lisa go along with it? She was supposed to be a bridesmaid in her cousin's wedding, and her 40th birthday was coming up, and the party was already planned. It would have been odd timing for them to choose to disappear then, when even if she was so inclined to abandon her family, if she waited a month, she could have had these final memories with them before taking off. The other thing that points away from the Hoffman angle is that Hoffman was eventually caught. He decided that $10 million from Canada wasn't quite enough, and he moved to Tasmania where he convinced elderly Australian investors that he was the son of a Dutch prince, and he swindled them as well. Nothing came out that he had any connection to the Massays in the 13 years or so that he was a fugitive. Well, in the first few years after the disappearance, authorities believed it was just as likely that 
the couple had run away to start a new life as it was that they were murdered. The more time that has passed has led investigators to lean more towards murder. What are your thoughts on this case? It's a really strange one, isn't it? I feel like murder is probable and I also feel like them running off is also probable. I mean, I think we can agree that there was definitely something going wrong in their life. There's multiple sources that point to that. Nick's comment at the funeral, maybe even Lisa's phone call the day after the weird meeting with the mystery businessman to say they were going to be gone for the next couple of days. The fact that they left their cat and the ties. What do you think? One piece of information that I would like to have that we don't have is, was it normal if Nick was going to miss work to have Lisa make that phone call? I know my parents, my dad does not talk on the phone, and I swear to you, if he had the flu, my mom would call his work and tell them that he wasn't coming in. But I would never, I I wouldn't even know how to call Lars's work to tell them he wasn't coming in. So I don't handle that for him. So I guess that's a relationship dynamic. And I'm curious theirs, because if it was normal for Lisa to call, then that's not a huge red flag. But if it wasn't, you have to wonder why Nick wasn't the one who called. And clearly his work called back 30 minutes later because they had to ask him something. So it would have made more sense for him to call, clear up whatever needed to be done that day before he left. So it makes me wonder if this was murder, if he was already no longer available to make that call and that he and Lisa had been abducted from outside the hotel or in the hotel that night after they had been lured there and they were taken somewhere and Lisa was still alive long enough to make those phone calls. That's my best guess with the phone call thing if we're going the murder theory. Otherwise, If they were running off, I'm not entirely sure why they made those phone calls unless they were just hoping to get a few days of a head start. That's possible as well. I don't know. I I think there is more to this case in the police files, which there always is. But I feel like there are some pieces here that we don't have that would be really useful for evaluating the case. Yeah, I agree. And it's pretty frustrating, really. But the other thing that I thought about was that surely Nick's family, his kids in particular, would have noticed that they were acting strangely, maybe a sadness or a goodbye type of message before they left. They didn't notice anything like that. So I'm sure that as a parent, and if you know that you're going to be running off and leaving your old life behind, you would give off some kind of vibe to your kids and they they didn't receive any such vibe. So I don't know, it's just very strange, but yeah, you're probably right. I think the signs all point to the fact that that there was some sort of abduction that happened there. Another big question in my mind with this case doesn't have to do necessarily with the case, but how unknown it is. This case has a lot of the elements that make cases popular for lack of a better word. Nick's kids, particularly his son, they've been active and vocal in trying to get information out. They hired a PI. They've given interviews. There is wealth involved. There are hints of scandal among the elite. This is a popular, well-liked, attractive couple. There are secret rendezvous and mysterious phone calls. I don't understand why isn't this case more well-known in Canada 
or even just among those who have an interest in true crime. Yeah, it's really strange. I had never heard of it before, and that doesn't say a lot because obviously I don't know every case across Canada, but I am aware of quite a few of them after 18 months of podcasting and taking case suggestions, and I'd never heard of this one. But just to be sure, I also checked in with Robin from The Trail Went Cold. Since he was the author of the Listverse article that listed this case as number one, I thought maybe I've missed something. And he said that he'd never heard of the case before either, and he only discovered it by chance when he was searching for items for that particular list of cases that he was writing. He said that it sounded like such a weird mystery that he had no idea why there hadn't been a lot of coverage about it. So it's definitely a strange one. It's yeah, I, I looked for other sources as well, and even on Web Sleuths and, and Unsolved Canada, which is a website that lists cases and speculation, there's very little out there. I found this case on the Doe Network because coming up, not to give too many spoilers, later this year, I'm covering a case of a family in Canada who went missing. And I was looking at the case, and there didn't seem to be a whole lot of information. And one of the things we do when we have a case where we don't have a lot of information, I look for similar cases so we can do two short episodes, smush them together to make one full-length episode. Our listeners have seen us do this a handful of times. So I was looking at that case, and I thought, let me look up and see if there are any other missing families from Canada And in my search, I found this on the Doe Network website. And then I started looking into it and realized there wasn't a whole lot of coverage. That 20-year anniversary coverage is the most widespread coverage that this case has had, where multiple news outlets picked it up. But a lot of those don't go into any depth as to what happened. No, they're just kind of repeating the same facts that were released when the couple first went missing. It's very strange. So my best guess on why this case is not more well-known is that it has to do with the internet. It was 1994. People were just getting the internet in their homes. There are a lot of cases from the 1980s to the early 90s that are really interesting. We covered one where It was a murder of a young woman, and there was a utility worker possibly involved, and they found his utility notepad on the path. So it had all the things we see. When we're looking at unsolved cases, we like cases that leave clues, that there are little things that are weird that we can look at. And this case also had it, and it was a case very few had heard of. So I think this is pretty common. Unless 2020, hard copy, which some of you are probably too young to know what that is, this TV show, Unsolved Mysteries, America's Most Wanted, unless those shows covered a case, a lot of people never heard of them. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this would have appealed or would have been well known to a whole different generation than today's internet generation although still like with all of the 20 year anniversary media coverage you might expect to see a renewed interest from a later generation but you know it just kind of seemed to go nowhere it's interesting which cases pique the interest of the public and when i looked into this one i was sure this would have been one of them and i was really surprised 
at the lack of coverage. There is one CBC special that you can find online to watch about it. It wasn't very long. It gave a lot of good information. And it's about the only coverage. But again, when we're talking the 1990s and, I mean, even into the early 2000s when we didn't have DVRs, unless you programmed your VCR to catch a program, you only saw it if you happened to be watching TV at that time. And a lot of things were missed. So this is just a really interesting case that I think, like you said, would appeal very differently if it happened today to the internet generation than it did to those of us who had to catch these things if we happened to see them, but we couldn't go search them out. Yeah, exactly. So Nicolas Gerard Jacques Messet would be 79 years old today. He speaks fluent Dutch and English with a light accent. He has graying light hair and blue eyes and stands 5 foot 7 or 170 centimeters and at the time of his disappearance he weighed 160 pounds or 73 kilograms. Lisa Mo Messet would be 63 years old today. She speaks English and Mandarin and has brown eyes. At the time of her disappearance, her hair was black. She stands 5 foot 6 or 168 centimetres. And at the time of her disappearance, she weighed 130 pounds or 58 kilograms. If you have any information on the disappearance of the Messays, contact the RCMP North Vancouver Detachment at 604-985-1311. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Facebook at Insight Podcast, Twitter at Insightful Pod, Instagram at Insight Pod, or email us at insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash insightpod. And a special thank you to Chesgrave Music for our new custom theme. Nine one one, what's your emergency? Every 60 seconds, a person is murdered somewhere in the world. There was a shootout in my house. I can't believe it. What causes ordinary people to do unthinkable things. He stabbed me in my neck. And he says, look how easily I could kill you. The Minds of Madness is a true crime podcast that examines the most disturbing criminal minds. We shed a light on the devastating impact these violent crimes have on the victims and their families. When you get calls in the night, you know they're not good or they're wrong numbers. You'll hear about the incredible strength of the survivors and what they did to fight back. I was studying his face because I was thinking, if I get out of this, I'm going to get you someday. Subscribe to the Minds of Madness podcast today on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Play. Nine one one.